You're listening to the Banner Church Podcast, recorded in Scottsdale, Arizona. Thank you so much for listening. For more information, visit us online at thebannerchurch.com. Hey, uh, I want to say uh, welcome this morning. If I haven't met you yet, uh, my name is Josh. I'm the lead pastor here, like my wife said. King, joining us in our This Is Jesus series, and uh, we're really looking at who Jesus Christ is, and um, if you saw the video kind of the combination of his fully man, fully God, and this incredible, I just love that about Jesus Christ, that he fully gets us because he was fully man, but he, has, he is perfect in all of his ways, and that he died and was resurrected, and that he was able to take the weight of sin and shame from us. And I just love that, that, God, that someone who is present at creation like kneels down into mud and rubs it into people's eyes and heals them, right? It's just like it's this gritty reality of who Jesus is, and I love that. And so this morning, you're joining us as we go through this uh, uh, series, and we're looking at the book of John. So if you brought your Bible, go ahead and even now just open up to the book of John. We're going to be in John chapter 2. Um, if you're new, if you didn't bring your Bible, it's going to be on the screen. Um, if you're newer to using a Bible, just go to where the divider between the Old and New Testament is. There's a nice little blank page right there that in some kind of Englishy writing or depending on your Bible will say New Testament, and then go Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, and you're there. If you get to Acts, you've gone too far, but you're right in that sweet spot if you're between Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, right there. And we're going to be talking through the book of John. Um, and John, I, I like as a gospel because 92% of John is unique. And so Matthew wrote the gospel, uh, Mark wrote the gospel, Luke wrote the gospel, John wrote the gospel. They're all writing based off what they've seen, heard, been a part of as, as followers, as disciples of Christ. But they kind of all had different intent in writing because they were all speaking to different audiences or some of them were speaking to different audiences. And so where you had uh, Matthew or Luke, they were speaking to more of a predominantly Hebrew audience. If you, if you look at Matthew, he was writing to people who got the idea of a Messiah, like they've been waiting for a Messiah. But when you look at John, the book of John, he was writing to, like, us, the Gentiles, people who maybe didn't grow by us. So when you read the beginning of John and he says, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was God, and the Word was with God, you're like, what a weird way to start. Like, the other guys, you know, Matthew, he starts with the birth. You know, Luke, they start with, like, the birth of Jesus. You start with this Word business. And it's because John was specifically addressing people that really didn't have the context of any kind of, like, messianic prophecy. He, and he's specifically writing as a, a, as a follower of Jesus. He's specifically writing to people who had not encountered Christ, saying, here is Jesus. Here is why this is important to you. And John's book, John's gospel came out, uh, and he uh, wrote it right about 85 to 90 A.D., and so he took really specific time being inspired by the Holy Spirit and led by God to put very specific stuff. And whereas Luke was a evan evangelical, it was, a, I mean, sorry, Luke was a historical account, right? Luke was a doctor. He got a lot of minutia in the details. John was like an evangelist. John was like the, um, the young adults pastor of gospel writing. Right, He's writing to the people in universities. He's writing to the people in completely different contexts. And so John's, the purpose of John's gospel is to say, here is Christ, and if you believe in Christ, you'll have eternal life. 
It wasn't to support and say, no, this is the Jesus you've been waiting for through the prophecy. It was to say, hey, you've never heard of this guy, but here's why he's important. I can present was by showing signs and wonders of Jesus Christ. He says, if I can present to you the undeniable miracles, then my prayer is hopefully you will receive Jesus Christ. In fact, at the end of John, towards the end of John in 2031, he talks about, he says, there's even more miracles than I could write down. There's even more signs than I could write down, but I only had so much room, so these are the ones I chose. And he says, these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. Can I tell you, that's my prayer with this series. This is why we're doing this series. And for those that, that believe in Christ, it's so that you will be empowered as believers to go out into your world and share the same hope and life that you've received, right? And so my prayer as we go through the This Is Jesus series is as we begin to understand more who this Jesus is, as the Bible says he is, that it will begin to inform us and transform us to the point where we begin to be a part of that mission as well. You with me this morning? Amen. Let's pray together. Lord, we thank you for your word. God, I thank you that you're with us here this morning. God, I thank you that you desire to transform our lives. I thank you that the word of God, as we read it and we open it up, it just it changes things in our hearts. And so, God, I pray that this morning you would transform our hearts. Speak through me this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. So we're going to be in John 2. Uh, this is the sign of water into wine. And I, I like poetry. Um, it, I don't know, I'm this weird juxtaposition of I love, like, football and, uh, you know, like, and poetry, and I'll do the same at, like, the same time watching football. It's, I don't know, it's this weird thing. feel sorry for my wife. It's just an emotional roller coaster. But uh, <laughs> I, I love this, and, and I love poetic symbolism. It's the creative in me. I love poetic symbolism, and to me, this is one of the most like poetic signs that occurs. And it's right at the beginning. And oftentimes we think it's neat. Sometimes, you know, Pentecostals wrestle with the whole wine thing. But we, we, we struggle. <laughs> we, we spend a little time and then we move on. But I think it's so poetic that if we could get a hold of what Jesus is doing here, I think we'd be like, oh, my gosh. This is way deeper than we ever anticipate, anticipated. Because Jesus not only in this moment, at the very beginning of his ministry, reveals the entire gospel with one miracle, but he also reveals how you and I can be a part of it. So this morning, I want to show you not only what, what Jesus does, but how you and I can be part of the miraculous. Because did you know, church, that God has given us a ministry of the miraculous through his power? I hope you know that. Because when you get a hold of that, man, it's going to change the world. But let's read together. I like reading the words, so let's do it. Uh, John 2, starting in verse 1, it says, On the third day... There was a wedding at Cana in Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. Jesus was also invited to the wedding with his disciples. So there was a wedding in Cana in Galilee on the third day. You're like, that's a weird way to tell somebody when something is, right? On the third day of what? Right? And so there was an event, and so then they were saying then it was the third day after this event, uh, but let's just say, because if you've been in church long enough, you understand the importance of the third day, right? So if you don't yet, hold on to that, put it in your heart like Mary, and, and just keep it, and we'll get there in a second. So on the third day, there's a wedding, pl important play on words, and it says, Jesus was also invited. Man, I love this about Jesus. 
Jesus was always invited where people were having a good time. I don't know how you see Jesus, but those who literally saw him thought, I think he'd have a good party. Jesus was always at people's homes that uh, a lot of people would not expect. He was always in fun places. He was always having a good time. He, he was at fun places, at parties. People invited him to things, right? Jesus was not a bummer. Now, he did uh, push some people away with some things like, eat my body. And they were like, no, hard pass. But Jesus was invited to places. Some of the places that we have um, outlawed, Jesus probably would be there right now. Uh, and so Jesus... Uh, got invited to fun things, and it kind of speaks to who he is. It speaks to the kind of man he was. At this point, he's 30, like he's an adult, and it speaks to who he is as Jesus. And so I want that to kind of form your idea, but I think also the other important thing is this speaks to how important it is and what happens when we invite Jesus into the events of our life. Everything I'm about to show you shows how important it is to invite Jesus into your life. Because as Jesus was also invited, can I tell you, he was invited to this wedding, but if you want a good marriage, I recommend starting it with inviting Jesus. If you want a healthy marriage right now, if you want a healthy family, if, you want, if you're going into a job, if you, want, if you want to be healthy, if you want to walk in the favor, if you're believing for the miraculous, then this phrase, Jesus was invited, should define your life. There's so many marriages that, that after the fact and relationships after the fact and things after the fact that we go, what went wrong? And I think, did you invite Jesus? Was he on your guest list? Because when Jesus comes to your wedding, he doesn't just bring the toaster from your registry, right? He brings the miraculous signs and wonders of God. He brings power. He brings the grace that you need for y'all's spouses. He, he brings that. I'm thankful that Jesus is in my marriage because without it, I guarantee you my wife would have killed me by now. Right? But beyond just, you know, death threats, beyond that, there are things that I have seen God do in this church because we invited Jesus first. He is the cornerstone. And so there's this little phrase that we skip over, when I, but I just want to toss it in. Marriage isn't easy. Life isn't easy. But let me tell you, when you invite Jesus, it paves the way for the miraculous. You still with me this morning? And I'm going to encourage you, if you want Jesus in your life, if you want Jesus in your marriage, if you want Jesus in your home, if you want to see the miraculous that comes from him, through him, by him, through the Holy Spirit, and I say make the invitation. He'll never deny it. He's not that weird relative that never returns the RSVP that you got to keep calling to make sure because you know they're going to post about it on Facebook later if they didn't get the right thing and then your whole family's going to. No, Jesus, when you invite him, he comes in and he changes everything. So that was a side note, but let's keep going. Are you still with me? Good? Verse 3, it says, so Jesus was invited. It says, when the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus, that being Mary, said to him, they have no wine. Okay, if you're at a party and they say to you, we're out of booze, most people would say, time to pack it in, right? Let's call it a night. Let's, uh, let's settle it. But I, I, I think this, th this is an important thing. When she says they ran out of wine, they're out of wine, there is something culturally significant that's happening here that we might not understand. Is a couple things. It was devastating to run out of wine, for a couple. It was devastating for the family. 
And, and now it could have been anything, but this happened to be wine, and I think, you know, for the symbolism. But a couple of reasons is that wine in that culture symbolized and had symbolized God's grace and also our abundant joy in receiving it. So if, and there's lots of verses um, that, that I've written down that I won't expand on, but in uh, Deuteronomy 7, Jeremiah 31, Isaiah 25, Joel 3, there's all these verses that talk about wine is the sim- symbol of God's grace in, in this time. And so because it was a symbol to run out, would symbolize that the couple was now not under God's grace, but since they didn't have the joy, it would also be a sign by their guests that they were unhappy, so if you ran out of wine at your wedding, you're basically telling everybody this marriage is a total crock and we're furious at each other. It would have been a symbol. But even beyond that, this is going beyond, here's the main reason why when she said they have no wine, it was bigger than just those couple words, is because marriages and weddings were a huge deal. I, and I know, I know they run people broke these days, but they were an even bigger deal in culture at that time. As a city, especially a smaller city, you had a social commitment to a wedding. And follow me here because it's important. If you fail to provide for your guests, you would be under scorn and shame for the rest of your life. There is a weight and a debt of shame that would occur. In fact, it's so far that it's likely you would be taken to court for your offense. And since you didn't have the money to buy wine, you certainly didn't have it after the wedding once you spent all your money on the wedding. So now you would have a debt of shame that you could not pay for the rest of your life. Are you still with me? And so this is more than they just ran out of wine. Oh, isn't that neat? Jesus can whip us up a new batch. This is not what this is. This is there is a weight societally and culturally because everyone spent so much. And if one person spends less and doesn't get spend their part, other people have an issue with them, right? There were people that weren't meeting the standard. And the idea of not measuring up to the standard is often where we get the word sin. And so in the, in that culture, there was a, a sin or a crime of shame. Still with me? Good. And I think most importantly is that the debt could not have been fixed by the groom. There was no way. So when the groom occurs this debt, it would have been on the groom. It would have been on the couple. It would have been on the bride. It means he cannot fix it. And so what does it say? Verse 3. Says the mother of Jesus said to him, they have no wine. I like that Mary brings this to her son. Here's what I'd like to think is the case. Mary, for those of you who, who might not know, was a teen girl when an angel came to her and said, the Holy Spirit's going to come upon you, and as a virgin, you're going to give birth to a son. And now she saw the angel. She was good. Joseph saw the angel. He was good. Nobody else saw the angel. So in that culture, she was still a teen girl that before she was married had a baby, which would have been a big deal at the time. And so now Jesus is 30. And if you had told people for 30 years, yeah, you know, he's the son of God, or you treasured it in your heart, they'd be wondering at 30, especially in a culture where most men are married at 18, why none of this son of God stuff had manifested, except maybe what we see some things earlier in his life. But they would start asking questions. And so part of me thinks Mary came to Jesus and was kind of like, okay, help me out here. 
You know, like, like vindicate me, right? Now, I mean, that's just me. I'm, don't, don't worry too deep. But I think there's something about Mary coming to her own son to say, listen, for years I have stuck by my story that it was an angel and not Joseph who got me pregnant. And now I need you to help me out. But I think even beyond this idea is that of all the people on the earth, Mary the most knew who Jesus was. And when you know Jesus, when you really know him, you really don't have a problem asking him to intervene because you know who he is and what he can do. And so here's what happens in verse 4. It says, they have no wine. And Jesus said to her, woman, what does this have to do with me? He probably said it just like that. My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, do whatever he tells you. So I like this. She comes to Jesus. This is classic. I mean, this is her son. So you got you to gotta sense some mother-son dynamics to do with me. Her son and says, son, they need more wine. And he says, woman, what does this have to do with me? It's not my time. And she says, great, do whatever he says. Right? <laughs> like, y'all, y'all can be my mom, and you can just see her doing that. Like, oh, oh, that's great. You're the son of God. Okay. Just do whatever he says. Like, he's still doing it. But no, I, I, there's, something kind of, there's something more here. So when he's saying woman, it's not diminutive. It's actually elevating because it's changing the dynamic that's occurring. Uh, it, there's not really a great English word. I wish I could pick out some English word that was so good. There's not a great English word for this, but it would be kind of like in the classical English sense of like lady, right? It, it's very uh, proper. It, it would be how a rabbi would address a woman. So he's reassessing the relationship. He's changing the dynamic in a good way. And here's why it's good. What Mary needed was not Jesus, her son. What Mary needed was not Jesus, who she changed diapers. It was not Jesus, who she nursed. It's not Jesus, who she bandaged, you know, boo-boos and owies when he fell, right? That's, it's not Jesus, the awkward teen years with the voice crack. That's not the Jesus she needed. She needed Jesus the Son of God. And so Jesus shifts the dynamic to say, okay, and it's very likely because we know Jesus that he prayed and then he, he felt led to, to do this. But can I tell you, this is true in our life. We do not need soft, picture, Christian bookstore Jesus. I do love that one. But we need a real Jesus. We need a powerful Jesus. I don't know if you're like me, but you're facing things in your life where you're saying, you know what I need? I don't need like fun Jesus, dashboard bobblehead Jesus, on a hat Jesus, t-shirt Jesus, fun Jesus. I need ripping the curtain into changing lives, raising the dead Jesus in my life. I need that Jesus because if I'm going to face the things that I'm going to face, I'm going to reject the caricature, and I need the Son of God. I need Christ because I need to see a miracle. And Mary knew that. She says, I'm, I've been my whole life, I'm waiting for this. And finally, you know what I don't need? I don't need diaper Jesus. I don't need, you know, voice crack Jesus. I need Jesus Christ, the Son of God, to intervene with the miraculous in this moment right now. That's what I need. That's what I need. When we face the unmovable objects in the world, can I tell you, we need real Jesus. We need a church that is about real Jesus. I know, like, fun teacher Jesus is easier to swallow as a pill to take down. But it will not save. It will not redeem. It will not change. It will not do things. Real, 
powerful, all of Jesus. Flipping tables, hugging lepers, Jesus, all of that. We need all of that, Jesus. In the mud, on the cross, in the grave, walking with his disciples. We need all of Jesus. That's why we preach all of Jesus. And so Mary looks at the, at the servants and he says, do whatever he tells you. I think that right there could probably be a sermon in itself. Do whatever he tells you. Why did she say this? She looks at the servant and says, do whatever he tells you. The servants probably haven't, I mean, they're, they're in the same neighborhood, so they might know, but they don't necessarily have contextual knowledge. She says, do whatever he tells you. And the reason she tells them that is because she's, prep, she's preparing them because Mary knows what the miraculous looks like. She's preparing them. She's saying, listen, see, I, I've seen God speak to the miracle, but often it looks absolutely crazy, so you're going to have to just trust him and do what he tells you to do, because I've seen the miraculous, but it looks a little crazy, because the miraculous looks crazy until it's complete, right? Mary knew this. See, Mary knew what a lot of people in history knew. Abraham and Sarah were told, you're going to have a child. Abraham, go out, count the stars. That is insane. Count the stars. That's how many descendants. That sounds crazy until it's complete, right? Think of Noah building the ark. That sounds crazy until the flood comes, right? Think of Moses. He leads a million people to a body of water that he cannot cross with the, one of the greatest armies of all civilization right behind them. That sounds crazy until it's complete, till the water's part and they walk across all throughout the word of God. We see that. We see that in Mary. Mary, I'm an angel of the Lord. I'm telling you, you're going to conceive and give birth to a son. And that son is going to be named Jesus, and he's going to become the savior of the world. See, that sounds crazy until it's complete. And so Mary looks at the servants, and she looks through time to you and I, and she says, if you want to be part of the miraculous, you got to get ready for the crazy. Because the miraculous looks a little crazy until it's complete. And the problem is the church, we've chased out our crazies. And it kind of seems like we need to get all the crazies back in so that we can start believing for the miraculous. But we're like, I don't know, the crazy makes me uncomfortable. Too bad. Being a pregnant virgin at 13 in a shame culture in the ancient Near East is also super uncomfortable. But can I tell you, if that didn't happen, we wouldn't have all of this in the Savior. See, the miraculous looks crazy until it's complete. So she looks at the servants and she says, it's going to get a little crazy in here. All the people said, uh, that one's a little harder to get behind than the things that are for me. Let me tell you, church, if you really want to see God move in this city, it's going to get a little crazy in here. People are like, what about order? Yeah, God's a God of order. I'm a little messy, so it's going to get a little crazy in here. Right? Things are going to happen, and I believe that. If you really want to believe for the future, if you really want to believe for the miraculous, then you got to get a little crazy. It happens. It happens. Sean 2, let's keep going. Verse 6, so his mother said to the servants, do whatever he tells you. So here's what he does. He does not clap his hands. He does not use magic words. He turns to the servants and it says, now there were six stone water jars there for Jewish rites of purification, each holding 20 or 30 gallons. Jesus said to the servants, fill the, fill the jars with water, and they filled them up to the brim. So there's roughly... Uh, 120 to 180 gallons of water. Have you seen a five-gallon bucket, right? Just begin to do that multiplication in your mind. I thought about bringing 10 five-gallon buckets and just stacking them as high as I could, and we still wouldn't get all the way, right? 
There's something epic about this scale. But I love this is that he tells the servants, fill the jars. So the servants probably think something's happening. He's going to go buy some wine. He's going to make it happen. He says, what I want you to do is I want you to do about three hours of manual labor. It's like, what? Like, yeah, the water source is not close, by the way. So they would have to take whatever they could physically carry. Have you tried to carry a five-gallon bucket of water? Like, that's not easy. So let's say they did two and a half, and they had to go, and they had to fill it up. And then once they filled it up, maybe one on each side, so they got five total, they had to bring it back. And then when they brought it back, they dumped it in. And when they dumped it in, they went, <sighs> they went back, and they got some more. And then they brought it back, and they dumped it in. And they did that thing that we all do when we're in any kind of construction as we look, and we go, how am I only making that dent? Are these jars growing? Right? And so six trips later, they've filled one of the ten, you know, things, right? Right? They, so multiple trips later, it took time. It took time to do it was difficult. It was mundane. And yet, the mundane so often can prepare us for the miracle. See, the servants, if they had given up in the mundane, if they had given up in the difficult, I think they would have missed the miracle. Because Jesus could have done the miracle regardless, but he chose it to do it with them. And every trip, I'm, I'm, I'm sure they're wondering, like, man, who convinced us to do this? This is the dumbest thing I've ever heard about. Filling up jars with water, son of God. He should just make it himself if he can make water, right? <laughs> Every trip. Has, have you never been there like thinking like, even when you're in your really spiritual mode, like, Jesus, this cannot be the plan. I know you're the God with the plan, but this can't be the plan because this looks a lot like water duty. And I'm filling up water. This, <laughs> like, what is going on? And so you make another trip and you're like, okay, Jesus, maybe someone's going to meet me on the road with a prophecy. Then I'm going to get a prophecy. Then I'm going to be up on a platform. And then I'm going to be doing my thing. And then you get it and he's still standing there like waiting for you to fill it. And so time goes by, right? Has anyone ever been here in your life wondering, are you sure, Jesus, this is really what you said for me? Like, are you sure? Because I'm, I'm 100 gallons deep. I kind of figured by now you'd show me some wine so I'd get a little, like, faith built up inside of me, right? Like, give me a little, give me just like a taste, like a little bit, like some splashes out and it's wine on the ground. We're like, oh, yes, thank you for the sign. But he doesn't. When did, he goes all the way to the brim, and I think that that's so important because the mundane so often gives way to the miraculous. It can pave the way to the miraculous. If you give up before you're done, before, before you complete the will, before you see it, then you, won't, then you won't see the miracle. And so the servants, even though I'm sure there's moments where they thought, like, oh, my gosh, how can this really be the plan? I'm filling up water. I'm walking back. I'm filling up water. I'm walking back. I'm exhausted. I'm tired. My soul doesn't feel at peace. I feel like I'm sweaty. How come the miracle of God had to make me work so hard? How come the miracle of God had to build muscles? How come it didn't just happen? If you could do anything, why did it happen? Why does it have to be so mundane? Why couldn't you have done it with, like, dinosaurs or something cool that was at least interesting? It had to be the most boring thing on earth, water. Right? Back and forth, back and forth, back and forth, back and forth. And yet, let me tell you, the servants saw one of the greatest miracles of all time because they were faithful in the mundane. They were faithful in the difficult. And so in this moment, when Jesus comes and does the miraculous, you know who knows? It's not the groom. It's not the host. It's not the people. It's the servants. You know who the servants are? They're the church. Church, can I tell you in your life what seems mundane right now, if you walk it out in faithfulness to God, God can do the miraculous. Your job might seem mundane, but if God has given you a purpose to be light in the darkness, it is not mundane. It's just making the way for the miracles. 
And I don't know what that brim is for you, but when it gets there, God's going to transform it and change everything. And it's up to him. So John 2, 8, we're back in the word, here it goes. It says, he said to them, now draw some out. So they filled it all the way up to the brim, right? There's no more. There was an old custom where you'd water down wine as it went. There's, there's no room. They can't add wine. There can't be addition. There can only be transformation. And it says in verse 8, he said to them, now draw some out and take it to the master of the feast. So they took it. I got to say, so they took it has to be the most um, condensed uh, emotional response into just a couple words in this whole passage. Because can you imagine? I mean, these are real people. These are not felt figures. These are real people. Can you imagine? You have just filled up what you know is water. You just spent the past hour lugging it up a hill. You filled this jar up with water. And now you, a servant, are being told by Jesus that you need to take out of the out of the water and you need to take the water to your boss right to your boss this is not like a heightened economy where you can just go get a job anywhere like this is your livelihood right like you're going to take just just imagine in your own life if i told you guys uh, we got a new vintner a new vineyard going up i'm going to have you take this water to your boss and tell them it's wine right that's what's happening and it says so they took it and, and we don't know kind of when it turns to wine. It says, you know, when he got it, it was wine. But here's when I think it turned to wine. He draws it out. He takes the first step of faith. I think it's wine. That's when I think. I don't think it was in the jar. Now, again, I don't know. So follow me here. This is just from the character. When I read the other miracles of Jesus, this is what happens. The fish didn't multiply when Jesus had it. He multiplied it when Peter gave it. He multiplied it in the step of faith in that moment where they stepped out, where he began to take it. So you have to take a step of faith before you can see the miraculous. The servants are probably thinking, Jesus, um, are you sure you're finished? Right? Are you sure when you're done? God, I, I kind of feel like there should be some more preparation. I'm gonna, I think we should prepare more, maybe say a couple more prayers, maybe do a couple more prayer meetings. And then once we've done a couple more prayer meetings, we start to see it turn into like maybe a nice rosé. Then I'm going to step out in faith. Right? Jesus, are you sure you're done? I, this whole thing's kind of a mess. Honestly, we're all sweaty, nasty. Now you want me to take something. And Jesus says, yeah, I want you to take it. And it says, so they took it. Has anyone ever felt like the servants, Jesus is calling you to take a step of faith, but you're not sure if he's done yet, or you're not sure if he's done enough yet, and you're like, are, are you sure? Am I the only one that functions that way? Like, Jesus, are you sure? You know, you go back into prayer, and you're like, okay, is this me thinking this? Did you say step out of faith, or am I thinking step out of faith, and I should rebuke myself, like I rebuke you, enemy? <laughs> or are you saying, okay, one, two, three, if you're telling me step out of faith, go. Okay, I don't know. Like, I can't, right? Is anyone, that's just me? No, okay, cool. Amen. Good. We're being honest today. Thank you. I appreciate that. But the miraculous happens in faith, not before it. Follow me. The miraculous happens in faith, not before it. If we want to see the miraculous, we have to take a step of faith before the water looks like wine. Before the promise appears, you've got to take a step of faith. Hebrews 11.1 1, should be on the screen, says, now faith is the assurance of things hoped for and the conviction of things not seen. But this is the funny thing is that faith looks like foolishness to the world, 
See, the world doesn't understand faith. My wife was reading an article on faith, and someone they were asking people, what is faith? And they said, oh, faith is believing in something that you know isn't true. I mean, we can all laugh at that, but, I mean, that, people think this. And if you think that, don't feel condemned. But I'm just saying, it, that's so wrong. Because for us, faith isn't believing in something that we know it's not true. We know the truth. We have faith, faith because we know the truth, because we know Jesus. See, the servants did not take a blind step out of general ignorance or religious devotion. They took a step out because Jesus Christ asked them to, and so they did. And because it was Jesus asking, and they knew Jesus Christ, it was Jesus who did the miracle. See, the faith for the miraculous rests in the Messiah. Every time. See, we're not taking steps of just blind allegiance. We're taking steps because we know the Messiah. We know Jesus Christ. And so, of course, it looks dumb to everybody else. Of course, faith, you know, is like, yeah, it's just hoping and stuff that you hope happens because you know it's just absolute bogus. Of course, that, that's what it looks like. If you don't know the Messiah, faith is the dumbest thing you could do. Trust in yourself. That'd be what I would recommend if you don't follow Jesus. I mean, it's not going to get you very far, but at least it's better than just randomness. But what we know but we know what they knew is Jesus Christ. And so we take a step of faith in the Messiah. And we're told if you have faith as small as a mustard seed, you can move mountains. And I like that idea. Because faith shows that we trust in God. But can I tell you, often before we're going to see mountains move, Christ wants to see us move. Before you're going to see those mountains move, he wants to see you move. He wants to see you take a step of faith. He wants to see you step into it because Jesus could have done this himself. He didn't need the whole water thing. He didn't need that, but he desires, he longs for his church to be a part of the miraculous. And he says, if you have faith as small as a mustard seed, you could speak to this mountain move and it will move. But before you can speak, you got to move. you got to show the faith. you got to live the faith. Here's what happens. You still with me this morning? Verse 9. When the master of the feast, so, so they took it to the master. It says, when the master of the feast tasted the water, now become wine, and did not know where it came from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew. I love that, man. Can that just be the new motto of our church? Like, I don't care who in the city knows that the miraculous is happening or where it came from. I just want them to know it was God. And then, like, we can just all celebrate <laughs> that he's healing lives and changing hearts. Um, Anyways, it says this, good master of the feast called the bridegroom, remember the guy with the debt, and he said to him, everyone serves the good wine first, and when the people have drunk freely, then the poor wine, but you have kept the good wine until now. This, the first, first of his signs, Jesus did at Cana in Galilee and manifested his glory, and the disciples believed in him. I, I want to sum up this moment because it's powerful, it's poetic, it's, it, it's honestly uh, I love it. It's really near and dear to my heart. As we learn from the wedding to invite Jesus into our lives, we learn from Mary to expect Jesus to do the miraculous. We learn from the servants that God wants to, us to be a part of the miracle. And the disciples show us at the end here that, that it's real, that they believed. We learn to, to trust and believe and to follow Christ. But I think the important question is, what is Jesus trying to show us? Why did he do this? Right? That's an important question is we, we see all these things that stand as principles, but can I tell you there is a deep poetic gospel that lives right here in this moment. If you can get a hold of this, if you've never grabbed a hold of the gospel, it will change your life. Here's the poetry. Wine, I told you, signifying the grace of God. 
and the joy for receiving it. So all the wine runs out, right? We talked about that. There's a massive offense. No way the groom can make more. He can't just go whip it up. It takes time. And so the groom has now, even though he might not even fully understand, I'm guessing he knew, but he has committed and the family has committed a crime. He has a debt of shame that he cannot pay. He's under the penalty of shame. He would have been taken to court. He would have to pay the debt of shame. But we know that he could not pay, so he would have been caught in a life of shame, a life of frustration, a life of isolation. It would have marked his life and his family's lives. And people are thinking, who can pay such an impossible debt? Who can pay the debt of shame upon the bride? And Jesus says, I can. I can pay. See, it's by the power of God through Jesus Christ that the debt is paid. Like, say amen if you're making a connection here. Are you making a connection? See, Jesus pays the debt of shame. That is the good news for every person that comes into this church this morning. You might feel like you have a massive debt of shame. Let me tell you, if these people had known, they would have been sweating with anxiety, the debt of shame over their life. They would have followed them. They would have cursed them that they would have been known by. And yet Jesus steps in without them even knowing and pays the debt of shame. Jesus brings a perfect offering. In fact, the host is amazed because the new wine is better than the old wine. Here's where it gets more poetic. Follow me here again. Jesus takes a ceremonial washing jars. It's a little, it's going to bring it all around. It's important. Jesus takes a ceremonial washing jars. That came from the Mosaic Law, also known as the Old Covenant that was given for purification. Because under the Mosaic Law, there's all these things you had to do to purify yourself under the law given. There were sacrifices, there was offerings, there was purification rites that you had to go through. These jars signified the Old Covenant the law that we could never live up to. They signified the old covenant. And so Jesus had the jars filled and then transformed. And the new wine that took away the debt and shame of the bride was brought forth miraculously through the fulfilling of the old covenant through Jesus Christ. Are you still with me? Good. Wine being the blood of Jesus, we just talked in communion, Luke 22 it, that this is what we referenced when we did communion. And I'm just going to uh, skip down to verse 20. It says, Likewise, the cup, after they had eaten, he took it, saying, This is the cup that is poured out for you. It is the new covenant in my blood. See, when Jesus died on the cross for you and I, he gave us a new covenant. No more purification rites, no more, no more fear, no more sacrificing lambs on altars. I'm thankful that we don't have to do that. But he gave us grace through his son, Jesus Christ. Two new wine, wine that symbolized grace. See, Jesus says, I didn't come to abolish the law. I came to fulfill it, right? I came to fulfill the law and all the sin and the shame and all that that you used to have. Jesus says, I already covered it. See, the groom didn't even know what was happening. But Jesus filled up the old covenant and they poured it out as new wine and his debt of shame was covered. See, Jesus has brought a new covenant for you to cover every sin and every shame. And you didn't even know. 
Like, I didn't even know before I encountered Christ that he had already done this. See, I was still thinking I had to, you know, kind of drag in my sin and shame. See, Jesus already saw the debt. He saw that it was unpayable. He saw that we would be taken to the court of eternity and be judged accordingly and have no way to pay it. And yet what Jesus did is he steps in with the miraculous and he pays it with new wine, his blood upon the cross. Amen. And I love that. It's not a small grace. He didn't make just enough. It was like, oh, thank goodness, and Jesus made enough, and we barely made it. He made so much. Here's how much wine he made, 900 bottles of wine. I don't care how many people are at your party. They are not drinking 900 bottles of wine. Unless <laughs> y'all are going to different parties than, you know, I've seen. <laughs> not, that's a lot of wine. And they're already into the, into the party. It's meant to be so extravagant. It's meant to be so absurd because God gives grace abundantly. See, God didn't just cover the sin and shame. He covered it so absurd and abundantly. See, we think all the time that eventually Jesus is going to uncover some sin or some shame in our life that all the church people are going to turn to us in their chair and be like, oh my gosh, and kick us out and remove us. And Jesus is going to be like, I'm sorry guys, I didn't know that was under there when I died for them. But that's not how it works. Jesus said, I came to give grace and abundantly. It's a gift. And so he gives, as symbolically, 180 gallons, 900 bottles of wine, so much left over that they could have sold it back, likely to make money back from what they've paid for the wedding. See, the miracle shows, or the leftover shows that the miracle is not a mistake. It's undeniable. Can I tell you, in your own life, the grace that God has given you, that's a miracle, and that shows other people that it's undeniable. When you let that grace not only fill you, but abundantly pour out of you. The more you give the grace of Jesus Christ to others, the more you show that it's not a mistake, it's a miracle. And I rejoice on that in this beautiful moment where Jesus, the Son of God, took the instrument of the old covenant and filled them so we could bring about new wine to cover the debt of shame for the bride. And I love that because Jesus, the Son of God, for me, took the law of the old covenant and fulfilled it by shedding of his blood to pay for the sin and the debt of sin and shame that I could not cover. Can I tell you, I love that about Jesus Christ. But you know what I also love about that? Is that he invited the servants to be a part of it. Would you guys stand with me? I'm going to invite the band up this morning. There's two things that I want to close by because there's two responses that we have to this. One is that Jesus came to give abundant grace. That's the first thing. The second thing is that Jesus invites us to be a part of the miraculous, to be a part of the miracle. See, think about this. If the wedding didn't invite Jesus, they would not have received. They would not have received the wine. They would not have received what covered their sin and shame. They'd still be living under the weight of sin and shame because they didn't invite Jesus into their life. But instead, because they invited Jesus into their life, they received a blessing beyond blessing, beyond blessing, beyond blessing that was a freedom from the weight of sin and shame. No shame you came in here with today is greater than the new wine poured out for you got to hear me say that. Second thing is, if the servants didn't follow in faith, they would have missed the miracle. Because I believe that once Jesus decided to step into the miraculous, that he wasn't about to 
uh, not see it happen. But the servants had a choice. Do I think all oh, the miraculous is only for Jesus or do I accept the invitation to be a part of the miraculous move of God? I'm not going to lie. I'm a little jealous of the, I didn't know I was supposed to get jealous in church. I'm a little jealous of the servants because I'm desperate to see the miraculous. And I wonder what mundane things I'm doing right now that are paving the way for the miraculous. And I thought this week, maybe I need to rethink those mundane things because I don't want to miss the miraculous. So maybe I've been complaining a little too much of the mundane. Maybe I've given up on some mundane things. Maybe I've given up in the mundane expecting the miraculous, but I want to be like the servants of some of you this morning. You came in here not even knowing that God wanted to release you into the ministry of the miraculous this morning. He wants a church that sees the miracles of Jesus Christ through the power of the Holy Spirit. And some of you have been waiting a long time, but you just need to step up and grab it and to be a part of it and believe it doesn't matter who you are. doesn't matter your background. That's covered. Now he's saying, who wants to be a part of the miraculous? Two things this morning. Would you close your eyes with me? I'm going to give two opportunities this morning. The very first one is the very first thing I shared, and that Jesus came to give abundant grace. And just like the groom, maybe just like me, just like my wife, just like all of us who have at one point in our life realized, God, I have a weight of sin, a debt that I cannot pay. But I thank you, Jesus, that you came, that you died, that you paid the price for my soul. And just like those at the wedding who received an abundant grace because they invited you in, I want to invite you into my life this morning. Some of you, that's you this morning. You've never said, Jesus, I invite you into my life. I choose to follow you with my life. But this morning you're saying, I need that abundant grace. I want to walk in the new life that comes from receiving the grace, the new wine this morning. If that's you, every eye closed, every head bowed, if that's you, you're saying this morning I'm going to choose to follow Jesus with my life or recommit my life to following him fully. I'm just going to invite you, every eye closed, every head bowed, to lift your hand up this morning. Say, I'm choosing today to follow Christ. Thank you. Once you lift it up, you can put it down. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. I'm going to do this this morning. I'm going to pray, and then I'm going to invite the whole church just to, just to repeat back after me together in unity. And if you are here this morning, these aren't magic words, but it informs your heart, and it does something when you speak the name of Jesus over your life, and you commit it to him. It does something to your heart. It's supernatural. And so I'm going to invite the whole church just to join together today. And we're going to pray, Jesus. I am a sinner. I have a debt I cannot pay. I thank you for dying for me. I give you my whole heart. I give you my whole life. And I receive the grace that you've bought for me. And I choose today to follow you with all that I am. Amen. Amen. One more thing this morning. Kind of stay in this moment of worship. Can we just rejoice for those that prayed this prayer this morning? I know you can't see their hands, but God, I just thank you this morning. 
If that's you while we're still in this moment, I want to tell you, please don't leave the church this morning without talking to my wife and I or one of our prayer team people who will be up here in just a second. But just in this moment, please don't leave before we can talk to you and encourage you on that journey. It's a great step on the journey of walking with Christ. But the second thing with every eye closed, every head bowed this morning is I want to say, if you're in this church and you're saying, I want to, I want to be a part of the miraculous, I want to see God move in the miraculous. Maybe it's in your life. Maybe it's through you. Maybe you're saying, you know what? I'm tired of depression having a hold on Scottsdale, and I want God to move through me in the miraculous, and I need him to kind of illuminate some of the mundane because I want to see him move in power. Maybe some of you, it's in the health of a loved one. Maybe, I, I don't know what it is, but if you're here this morning and you're saying, God, I need you to move in the miraculous through me in, in any way, whatever it is for you. But you're saying this morning, God, I need you to move in the miraculous in me and through me. God, I want to be a part of the miraculous. I want to be a part of seeing your spirit heal. I want to be a part of seeing changed lives. I want to be a part of seeing revival in my family. I want to be a part of seeing revival in my work. I want to be a part of seeing healing. I want to be a part of seeing restoration. And so, God, I I'm going to step up today and say, God, I want you to use me. Work through me. I want to be like one of those servants, God. And even if you're having me take water, I don't even care. I just want to see the miraculous, God. That's what I want. I don't want to leave here today without committing, without you seeing me right here, Josh, standing before you saying, God, I want to be a part of the miraculous. I want to see it through my life. If that's you this morning and you're saying, I want to be a part of it, here's all I want you to do. I just want you to come forward right here in the altar and make a step of faith. It's not about receiving, and I'm going to invite you just in, in two seconds, just invite you. If you're saying this morning, I want to be a part of the miraculous, here's why I want you to do this. I want you to come forward because I want you to show God this is my first step of faith. This is counter to my nature, but I'm going to take a step of faith forward and say this morning, Jesus, I want you to do the miraculous through me. If that's you, just come forward right now. One, two, three. Make your way. And as you come forward, just take a moment of prayer, wherever you're at, and just begin to pray. Jesus, this is my step of faith. This is my step of faith to show you, God, I so deeply desire for you to move in the miraculous. And whatever that is, just begin to lift it up to him and pray. God, would you do a miracle? Maybe it's in your life or in your home or in your family. Maybe it's in this city. Man, we need a church that desires the miraculous in Scottsdale. We're believing for some prayer walks in this city, and I'm already believing God's going to do the miraculous. So if you don't have anything to pray for at your seat, pray for that. And, and pray, God, we, we desire for you to do the miraculous. Let's pray together this morning. Whatever you have, just begin to lift it up. Lord, I desire this morning, see every heart here. See every person here who's believing for the miraculous through your Holy Spirit, God, not by their power, not because they've earned it, not because they've checked the right amount of boxes and now you're going to love them more or anything like that, but because you promised your spirit. And so this morning, this is a step of faith to say, I am believing for greater things by the power of the Holy Spirit. By the blood of Jesus that was poured out, I'm saying this morning, God, I need you to work through me. God, I need you to work in me. God, we need you in this church. 
God, we thank you that there is power through you. We thank you that there is power in the name of Jesus. And so, God, I pray for every person here this morning. God is making that step. I pray right now, would you meet them and encounter them? Would you use them in a miraculous way in Jesus' name? Just take a second. Just begin to seek him and offer it up to him. Whatever it is, lay it down. Whatever it is, lift it up and begin to listen to the Lord and begin to ask him as our worship team plays. Begin to say, God, would you show me how you want to use me? Would you open the eyes of my heart, Lord?